Question 154, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues, The Virtue of Temperance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues. The Virtue of Temperance, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 154. Of the Parts of Lust, in Twelve Articles. Part 2, Articles 6 through 12. Sixth Article. Whether Seduction Should Be Reckoned a Species of Lust. Objection 1. It would seem that seduction should not be reckoned a species of lust. For seduction denotes the unlawful violation of a virgin, according to the Decretals. But this may occur between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman, which pertains to fornication. Therefore, seduction should not be reckoned a species of lust, distinct from fornication. Objection to further... Ambrose says in On the Patriarchs, for Let no man be deluded by human laws. All seduction is adultery. Now a species is not contained under another that is differentiated in opposition to it. Therefore, since adultery is a species of lust, it seems that seduction should not be reckoned a species of lust. Objection 3. Further, to do a person an injury would seem to pertain to injustice rather than to lust. Now the seducer does an injury to another, namely, the violated maiden's father, who can take the injury as personal to himself, according to Gratian, and sue the seducer for damages. Therefore, Seduction should not be reckoned a species of lust. On the contrary, seduction consists properly in the venereal act whereby a virgin is violated. Therefore, since lust is properly about venereal actions, it would seem that seduction is a species of lust. I answer that, when the matter of a vice has a special deformity, we must reckon it to be a determinate species of that vice. Now lust is a sin concerned with venereal matter, as stated above in question 153, article 1. And a special deformity attaches to the violation of a virgin who is under her father's care, both on the part of the maid who through being violated without any previous compact of marriage, is both hindered from contracting a lawful marriage, and is put on the road to a wanton life from which she was withheld, lest she should lose the seal of virginity. And on the part of the father who is her guardian, according to Ecclesiasticus 42.11, Keep a sure watch over a shameless daughter, lest at any time she make thee become a laughing-stock to thy enemies. Therefore, it is evident that seduction 
which denotes the unlawful violation of a virgin, while still under the guardianship of her parents, is a determinate species of lust. Reply to Objection 1. Although a virgin is free from the bond of marriage, she is not free from her father's power. Moreover, the seal of virginity is a special obstacle to the intercourse of fornication in that it should be removed by marriage only. Hence, seduction is not simple fornication, since the latter is intercourse with harlots, women, namely, who are no longer virgins, as a gloss observes on Second Corinthians 12, and have not done penance for the uncleanness and fornication, etc. Reply to Objection 2. Ambrose here takes seduction in another sense, as applicable in a general way to any sin of lust. Wherefore seduction, in the words quoted, signifies the intercourse between a married man and any woman other than his wife. This is clear from his adding, Nor is it lawful for the husband to do what the wife may not. In this sense, too, we are to understand the words of Numbers 5.13. If the adultery is secret and cannot be provided by witnesses because she was not found in adultery. Stupro. Reply to Objection 3. Nothing prevents a sin from having a greater deformity through being united to another sin. Now the sin of lust obtains a greater deformity from the sin of injustice, because the concupiscence would seem to be more inordinate, seeing that it refrains not from the pleasurable object, so that it may avoid an injustice. In fact, a twofold injustice attaches to it. One is on the part of the virgin, who, though not violated by force, is nevertheless seduced, and thus the seducer is bound to compensation. Hence it is written in Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17, If a man seduce a virgin not yet espoused, and lie with her, he shall endow her and have her to wife. If the maid's father will not give her to him, he shall give money according to the dowry, which virgins are wont to receive. The other injury is done to the maid's father, wherefore the seducer is bound by the law to a penalty in his regard. For it is written in Deuteronomy 22 verses 28 and 29, if a man find a damsel that is a virgin, who is not espoused, and taking her, lie with her, and the matter come to judgment, he that lay with her shall give to the father of the maid fifty sickles of silver, and shall have her to wife, and because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all the days of his life, and this lest he should prove to have married her in mockery, as Augustine observes. Seventh article, whether rape is a species of lust distinct from seduction. Objection 1. It would seem that rape is not a species of lust distinct from seduction. For Isidore says in his Etymologies 526 that seduction, stuprum, or rape, properly speaking, is unlawful intercourse 
and takes its name from its causing corruption. Wherefore he that is guilty of rape is a seducer. Therefore, it seems that rape should not be reckoned a species of lust distinct from seduction. Objection to further, rape apparently implies violence, for it is stated in the decretals that rape is committed when a maid is taken away by force from her father's house, that after being violated she may be taken to wife. But the employment of force is accidental to lust, for this essentially regards the pleasure of intercourse. Therefore, it seems that rape should not be reckoned a determinate species of lust. Objection 3. Further, the sin of lust is curbed by marriage, for it is written in 1 Corinthians 7.2, For fear of fornication, let every man have his own wife. Now rape is an obstacle to subsequent marriage, for it was enacted in the Council of Mo. We decree that those who are guilty of rape, or of abducting or seducing women, should not have those women in marriage, although they should have subsequently married them with the consent of their parents. Therefore, rape is not a determinate species of lust distinct from seduction. Objection for, further, a man may have knowledge of his newly married wife without committing a sin of lust. Yet he may commit rape if he take her away by force from her parents' house and have carnal knowledge of her. Therefore, rape should not be reckoned a determinate species of lust. On the contrary, rape is unlawful sexual intercourse, as Isidore states in Anabologies 5.26 but this pertains to the sin of lust. Therefore, rape is a species of lust. I answer that, rape, in the sense in which we speak of it now, is a species of lust, and sometimes it coincides with seduction. Sometimes there is rape without seduction, and sometimes seduction without rape. They coincide when a man employs force in order unlawfully to violate a virgin. This force is employed sometimes both towards the virgin and towards her father, and sometimes towards the father and not to the virgin, for instance, if she allows herself to be taken away by force from her father's house. Again, the force employed in rape differs in another way because sometimes a maiden is taken away by force from her parents' house and is forcibly violated, while sometimes, though taken away by force, she is not forcibly violated, but of her own consent, whether by act of fornication or by the act of marriage, for the conditions of rape remain no matter how force is employed. There is rape without seduction if a man abduct a widow or one who is not a virgin. Hence Pope Symmachus says, We abhor abductors, whether of widows or of virgins, on account of the heinousness of their crime. There is seduction without rape when a man, without employing force, violates a virgin unlawfully. 
Reply to Objection 1. Since rape frequently coincides with seduction, the one is sometimes used to signify the other. Reply to Objection 2. The employment of force would seem to arise from the greatness of concupiscence, the result being that a man does not fear to endanger himself by offering violence. Reply to Objection 3. The rape of a maiden who is promised in marriage is to be judged differently from that of one who is not so promised. For one who is promised in marriage must be restored to her betrothed, who has a right to her in virtue of their betrothal, whereas one that is not promised to another must first of all be restored to her father's care, and then the abductor may lawfully marry her with her parents' consent. Otherwise the marriage is unlawful, since whosoever steals a thing he is bound to restore it. Nevertheless, rape does not dissolve a marriage already contracted, although it is an impediment to its being contracted. As to the decree of the council in question, it was made in abhorrence of this crime and has been abrogated. Wherefore Jerome declares to the contrary, Three kinds of lawful marriage, says he, are mentioned in holy writ. The first is that of a chaste maiden given away lawfully in her maidenhood to a man. The second is when a man finds a maiden in the city, and by force has carnal knowledge of her. If the father be willing, the man shall endow her according to the father's estimate, and shall pay the price of her purity. The third is when the maiden is taken away from such a man, and is given to another at the father's will. We may also take this decree to refer to those who are promised to others in marriage, especially if the betrothal be expressed by words in the present tense. Reply to Objection 4. The man who is just married has, in virtue of the betrothal, a certain right in her. Wherefore, although he sins by using violence, he is not guilty of the crime of rape. Hence, Pope Gelasius says, This law of bygone rulers stated that rape was committed when a maiden, with regard to whose marriage nothing had so far been decided, was taken away by force. Eighth Article Whether Adultery is Determinate Species of Lust, Distinct from the Other Species Objection 1. It would seem that adultery is not a determinate species of lust distinct from the other species. For adultery takes its name from a man having intercourse with a woman who is not his own, according to a gloss on Exodus 20.14. Now a woman who is not one's own may be of various conditions, namely either a virgin or under her father's care, or a harlot, or of any other description. Therefore, it seems that adultery is not a species of lust distinct from the others. Objection to, further, Jerome says, It matters not for what reason a man behaves as one demented. Hence Sixtus the Pythagorean says in his maxims, 
he that is insatiable of his wife is an adulterer. And in like manner, one who is over-enamored of any woman. Now, every kind of lust includes a too ardent love. Therefore, adultery is in every kind of lust, and consequently, it should not be reckoned a species of lust. Objection 3. Further, where there is the same kind of deformity, there would seem to be the same species of sin. Now, apparently, there is the same kind of deformity in seduction and adultery, since in either case a woman is violated who is under another person's authority. Therefore, adultery is not a determinate species of lust distinct from the others. On the contrary, Pope Leo says that adultery is sexual intercourse with another man or woman in contravention of the marriage compact, whether through the impulse of one's own lust or with the consent of the other party. Now this implies a special deformity of lust. Therefore, adultery is a determinate species of lust. I answer that adultery, as its name implies, is access to another's marriage bed, ad alienum torum. By so doing, a man is guilty of a twofold offense against chastity and the good of human procreation. First, by accession to a woman who is not joined to him in marriage, which is contrary to the good of the upbringing of his own children. Secondly, by accession to a woman who is united to another in marriage, and thus he hinders the good of another's children. The same applies to the married woman who is corrupted by adultery. Wherefore it is written, in Ecclesiasticus 23, verses 32 and 33, Every woman that leaveth her husband shall be guilty of sin. For first she hath been unfaithful to the law of the Most High, since there it is commanded, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And secondly, she hath offended against her husband, by making it uncertain that the children are his. Thirdly, that she hath fornicated in adultery, and hath gotten children of another man, which is contrary to the good of her offspring. The first of these, however, is common to all mortal sins, while the two others belong especially to the deformity of adultery. Hence it is manifest that adultery is a determinate species of lust through having a special deformity in venereal acts. Reply to Objection 1. If a married man has intercourse with another woman, his sin may be denominated either with regard to him, and thus it is always adultery, since his action is contrary to the fidelity of marriage, or with regard to the woman with whom he has intercourse, and thus sometimes it is adultery, as when a married man has intercourse with another's wife, and sometimes it has the character of seduction, or of some other sin, according to various conditions affecting the woman with whom he has intercourse. And it has been stated above, in Article 1, that the species of lust correspond to the various conditions of women.
Reply to Objection 2. Matrimony is specially ordained for the good of human offspring, as stated above in Article 2. But adultery is especially opposed to matrimony, in the point of breaking the marriage faith which is due between husband and wife. And since the man who is too ardent a lover of his wife acts counter to the good of marriage if he use her indecently, although he be not unfaithful, he may in a sense be called an adulterer, and even more so than he that is too ardent a lover of another woman. Reply to Objection 3. The wife is under her husband's authority as united to him in marriage, whereas the maid is under her father's authority as one who is to be married by that authority. Hence the sin of adultery is contrary to the good of marriage in one way, and the sin of seduction in another, wherefore they are reckoned to differ specifically. Of other matters concerning adultery we shall speak in the third part, when we treat of matrimony. Ninth Article whether incest is a determinate species of lust. Objection 1. It would seem that incest is not a determinate species of lust. Translator's note, incestus is equivalent to incastus, unchaste. For incest takes its name from being a privation of chastity. But all kinds of lust are opposed to chastity. Therefore, it seems that incest is not a species of lust, but is lust itself in general. Objection to further, it is stated in the Decretals that incest is intercourse between a man and a woman related by consanguinity or affinity. Now affinity differs from consanguinity. Therefore, it is not one, but several species of lust. Objection 3. Further, that which does not of itself imply a deformity does not constitute a determinate species of vice. But intercourse between those who are related by consanguinity or affinity does not of itself contain any deformity, else it would never have been lawful. Therefore, Incest is not a determinate species of lust. On the contrary, the species of lust are distinguished according to the various conditions of women with whom a man has unlawful intercourse. Now incest implies a special condition on the part of the woman, because it is unlawful intercourse with a woman related by consanguinity or affinity as stated in Objection 2. Therefore, incest is a determinate species of lust. I answer that, as stated above in Articles 1 and 6, wherever we find something incompatible with the right use of venereal actions, there must needs be a determinate species of lust. Now sexual intercourse with women related by consanguinity or affinity is unbecoming to venereal union on three counts. 
First, because man naturally owes a certain respect to his parents, and therefore to his other blood relations, who are descended in near degree from the same parents. So much so indeed, that among the ancients, as Valerius Maximus relates, it was not deemed right for a son to bathe with his father, lest they should see one another naked. Now from what has been said in question 142, article 4, as well as in question 151, article 4, it is evident that in venereal acts there is a certain shamefulness inconsistent with respect, wherefore men are ashamed of them. Wherefore, it is unseemly that such persons should be united in venereal intercourse. The reason seems to be indicated in Leviticus 18.7, where we read, She is thy mother, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. And the same is expressed further on with regard to others. The second reason is because blood relations must needs live in close touch with one another. Wherefore, if they were not debarred from venereal union, opportunities of venereal intercourse would be very frequent, and thus men's minds would be enervated by lust. Hence, in the old law, found in Leviticus 18, the prohibition was apparently directed specially to those persons who must needs live together. The third reason is, because this would hinder a man from having many friends, since through a man taking a stranger to wife, all his wife's relations are united to him by a special kind of friendship, as though they were of the same blood as himself. Wherefore Augustine says, in On the City of God, 1516, The demands of charity are most perfectly satisfied by men uniting together in the bonds that the various ties of friendship require, so that they may live together in a useful and becoming amity. Nor should one man have many relationships in one, but each should have one. Aristotle adds another reason, in Politics too. For since it is natural that a man should have a liking for a woman of his kindred, if to this be added the love that has its origin in venereal intercourse, his love would be too ardent and would become a very great incentive to lust, and this is contrary to chastity. Hence it is evident that incest is a determinate species of lust. Reply to Objection 1. Unlawful intercourse between persons related to one another would be most prejudicial to chastity, both on account of the opportunities it affords and because of the excessive ardor of love, as stated in the article. Wherefore the unlawful intercourse between such persons is called incest, antinomastically. Reply to Objection 2. Persons are related by affinity through one who is related by consanguinity, and therefore, since the one depends on the other, consanguinity and affinity entail the same kind of unbecomingness. Reply to Objection 3. There is something essentially unbecoming and contrary to natural reason in sexual intercourse between persons related by blood, for instance, between parents and children who are directly and immediately related to one another, 
since children naturally owe their parents honor. Hence the philosopher instances a horse which covered its own mother by mistake and threw itself over a precipice as though horrified at what it has done, because some animals even have a natural respect for those that have begotten them. There is not the same essential unbecomingness attaching to other persons who are related to one another not directly but through their parents. And as to this, becomingness or unbecomingness varies according to custom, and human or divine law, because, as stated above in Article 2, sexual intercourse, being directed to the common good, is subject to law. Wherefore, as Augustine says in On the City of God 15.16, whereas the union of brothers and sisters goes back to olden times, it became all the more worthy of condemnation when religion forbade it. Tenth Article Whether Sacrilege Can Be a Species of Lust Objection 1. It would seem that sacrilege cannot be a species of lust. For the same species is not contained under different genera that are not subalternated to one another. Now sacrilege is a species of irreligion, as stated above in question 99, article 2. Therefore, sacrilege cannot be reckoned a species of lust. Objection to, further, the decretals do not place sacrilege among other sins which are reckoned species of lust. Therefore, it would not seem to be a species of lust. Objection 3. Further, something derogatory to a sacred thing may be done by the other kinds of vice as well as by lust. But sacrilege is not reckoned a species of gluttony or of any other similar vice. Therefore, neither should it be reckoned a species of lust. On the contrary, Augustine says in On the City of God 1516 that if it is wicked, through covetousness, to go beyond one's earthly bounds, how much more wicked is it, through venereal lust, to transgress the bounds of morals? Now to go beyond one's earthly bounds in sacred matters is a sin of sacrilege. Therefore, it is likewise a sin of sacrilege to overthrow the bounds of morals through venereal desire in sacred matters but venereal desire pertains to lust. Therefore, sacrilege is a species of lust. I answer that, as stated above in the Pars Prima Secundae, question 18, article 6 and 7, the act of a virtue or vice that is directed to the end of another virtue or vice assumes the latter species. Thus, theft committed for the sake of adultery passes into the species of adultery. Now, it is evident that, as Augustine states in On Virginity 8, the observance of chastity, by being directed to the worship of God, becomes an act of religion, as in the case of those who vow and keep chastity. Wherefore, it is manifest that lust also, by violating something pertaining to the worship of God, 
belongs to the species of sacrilege, and in this way sacrilege may be accounted a species of lust. Reply to Objection 1. Lust, by being directed to another vice as its end, becomes a species of that vice, and so a species of lust may also be a species of irreligion, as of a higher genus. Reply to Objection 2. The enumeration referred to includes those sins which are species of lust by their very nature, whereas sacrilege is a species of lust insofar as it is directed to another vice as its end, and may coincide with the various species of lust. For unlawful intercourse between persons mutually united by spiritual relationship is a sacrilege after the manner of incest. Intercourse with a virgin consecrated to God, inasmuch as she is the spouse of Christ, is sacrilege resembling adultery. If the maiden be under her father's authority, it will be spiritual seduction, and if force be employed, it will be spiritual rape, which kind of rape even the civil law punishes more severely than others. Thus the emperor Justinian says, If any man dare, I will not say to rape, but even to tempt a consecrated virgin with a view to marriage, he shall be liable to capital punishment. Reply to Objection 3. Sacrilege is committed on a consecrated thing. Now a consecrated thing is either a consecrated person who is desired for sexual intercourse, and thus it is a kind of lust, or it is desired for possession, and thus it is a kind of injustice. Sacrilege may also come under the head of anger, for instance, if through anger an injury be done to a consecrated person. Again, one may commit a sacrilege by partaking gluttonously of sacred food. Nevertheless, sacrilege is ascribed more specially to lust, which is opposed to chastity, for the observance of which certain persons are specially consecrated. Eleventh Article whether the unnatural vice is a species of lust. Objection 1. It would seem that the unnatural vice is not a species of lust. For no mention of the vice against nature is made in the enumeration given above in Article 1, Objection 1. Therefore, it is not a species of lust. Objection 2. Further, lust is contrary to virtue and so it is comprised under vice. But the unnatural vice is comprised not under vice, but under bestiality, according to the philosopher in Ethics 7.5. Therefore, the unnatural vice is not a species of lust. Objection 3. Further, lust regards acts directed to human generation, as stated above, in question 153, Article 2, whereas the unnatural vice concerns acts from which generation cannot follow. Therefore, the unnatural vice is not a species of lust. On the contrary, it is reckoned together with the other species of lust 
in second corinthians twelve twenty one where we read and have not done penance for the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness where a gloss says lasciviousness that is unnatural lust i answer that as stated above in articles six and nine wherever there occurs a special kind of deformity whereby the venereal act is rendered unbecoming there is a determinate species of lust this may occur in two ways first through being contrary to right reason and this is common to all lustful vices secondly because in addition it is contrary to the natural order of the venereal act as becoming to the human race and this is called the unnatural vice this may happen in several ways first by procuring pollution without any copulation for the sake of venereal pleasure this pertains to the sin of uncleanness which some call effeminacy secondly by copulation with a thing of undue species and this is called bestiality thirdly by copulation with an undue sex male with male or female with female as the apostle states in romans one twenty seven and this is called the vice of sodomy fourthly by not observing the natural manner of copulation either as to undue means or as to other monstrous and bestial manners of copulation reply to objection one there we enumerated the species of lust that are not contrary to human nature wherefore the unnatural vice was omitted reply to objection two bestiality differs from vice for the latter is opposed to human virtue by a certain excess in the same matter as the virtue and therefore is reducible to the same genus Reply to objection 3. The lustful man intends not human generation, but venereal pleasures. It is possible to have this without those acts from which human generation follows, and it is that which is sought in the unnatural vice. Twelfth article. Whether the unnatural vice is the greatest sin among the species of lust. Objection 1. It would seem that the unnatural vice is not the greatest sin among the species of lust. For the more a sin is contrary to charity, the graver it is. Now adultery, seduction, and rape, which are injurious to our neighbor, are seemingly more contrary to the love of our neighbor than unnatural sins, by which no other person is injured. Therefore, the unnatural sin is not the greatest among the species of lust. Objection to, further, sins committed against God would seem to be the most grievous. Now sacrilege is committed directly against God, since it is injurious to the divine worship. Therefore, sacrilege is a graver sin than the unnatural vice. Objection 3. Further, 
seemingly a sin is all the more grievous according as we owe a greater love to the person against whom that sin is committed now the order of charity requires that a man love more those persons who are united to him and such are those whom he defiles by incest than persons who are not connected with him and whom in certain cases he defiles by the unnatural vice therefore incest is a graver sin than the unnatural vice objection for further if the unnatural vice is most grievous the more it is against nature the graver it would seem to be now the sin of uncleanness or effeminacy would seem to be most contrary to nature since it would seem especially in accord with nature that agent and patient should be distinct from one another hence it would follow that uncleanness is the gravest of unnatural vices but this is not true therefore unnatural vices are not the most grievous among sins of lust on the contrary augustine says that of all these namely the sins belonging to lust that which is against nature is the worst I answer that, in every genus, worst of all is the corruption of the principle on which the rest depend. Now the principles of reason are those things that are according to nature, because reason presupposes things as determined by nature, before disposing of other things according as it is fitting. This may be observed both in speculative and in practical matters. Wherefore, just as in speculative matters, the most grievous and shameful error is that which is about things, the knowledge of which is naturally bestowed on man, so in matters of action it is most grave and shameful to act against things as determined by nature. Therefore, since by the unnatural vices man transgresses that which has been determined by nature with regard to the use of venereal actions, it follows that in this matter this sin is gravest of all. After it comes incest, which, as stated in Article 9, is contrary to the natural respect we owe persons related to us. With regard to the other species of lust, they imply a transgression merely of that which is determined by right reason, on the presumption, however, of natural principles. Now it is more against reason to make use of the venereal act not only with prejudice to the future offspring, but also so as to injure another person besides. Wherefore, simple fornication, which is committed without injustice to another person, is the least grave among the species of lust. Then it is a greater injustice to have intercourse with a woman who is subject to another's authority, as regards the act of generation, than as regards merely her guardianship. Wherefore, adultery is more grievous than seduction. And both of these are aggravated by the use of violence. Hence rape of a virgin is graver than seduction, and rape of a wife than adultery. And all these are aggravated by coming under the head of sacrilege, as stated above in Article 10, Second reply. 
Reply to Objection 1. Just as the ordering of right reason proceeds from man, so the order of nature is from God himself. Wherefore in sins contrary to nature, whereby the very order of nature is violated, an injury is done to God, the author of nature. Hence Augustine says in Confessions 3.8, Those foul offenses that are against nature should be everywhere and at all times detested and punished, such as were those of the people of Sodom, which should all nations commit, they should all stand guilty of the same crime, by the law of God which hath not so made men that they should so abuse one another. For even that very intercourse which should be between God and us is violated when that same nature, of which he is the author, is polluted by the perversity of lust. Reply to Objection 2. Vices against nature are also against God, as stated above in the first reply, and are so much more grievous than the depravity of sacrilege, as the order impressed on human nature is prior to, and more firm than, any subsequently established order. Reply to Objection 3. The nature of the species is more intimately united to each individual than any other individual is. Wherefore, sins against the specific nature are more grievous. Reply to Objection 4. Gravity of a sin depends more on the abuse of a thing than on the omission of the right use. Wherefore, among sins against nature, the lowest place belongs to the sin of uncleanness, which consists in the mere omission of copulation with another. While the most grievous is the sin of bestiality, because use of the due species is not observed. Hence a gloss on Genesis 37.2, He accused his brethren of a most wicked crime, says that, They copulated with cattle. After this comes the sin of sodomy, because use of the right sex is not observed. Lastly comes the sin of not observing the right manner of copulation, which is more grievous if the abuse regards the vas than if it affects the manner of copulation in respect of other circumstances. End of question 154. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.